Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Perringer. So if you would, take your Bibles, your sword of the Lord, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 today. We'll read uh, beginning in verse uh, 4 here in uh, just uh, a minute. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was skimming through this scholarly journal and it did a study that looked at the NBA players when selfishness amongst NBA players increased on a team. I mean, I know when you think of NBA players, you're thinking, well, they're selfish all the time anyway. But now, I mean, actually, this was looking into when the selfishness increased. And what the researchers found is that when the games are very high stake, be it in the playoffs or maybe even in, uh, the na- for the national title, during those high-stake games, team cooperation actually decreased and selfishness increased, which to me sounds a little strange because when you, you would think that it would be important for teammates to work together toward this common goal of winning a national title and getting through the playoffs, but actually during those times, they are drifting farther apart and looking after themselves rather than looking after the team. Now, the people who are doing the research they hypothesized that the reason for this is that these players tied being, you know, getting their numbers up, getting their personal stats up in order to have more lucrative contracts in the future. So they said that the players have kind of this mixed incentive social dilemma because the players think that they have to choose between two things. They have to choose between maximizing their personal scoring alley in order to increase their market value versus assisting teammates in order to achieve the collective goal of actually winning the game and progressing in the, in the playoffs. And so it's weird to me. Now, we've all heard the cliche that there's no I in team, but you know what? When it comes to the NBA and when it comes to high-stakes games, Obviously, there must be because they sure don't like to, to work together during important games. They turn selfish. They turn toward themselves and their own self-interests when the stakes are, are high. So my interpretation or my perspective of this whole thing is that the, the players would rather be loners in order to promote themselves and to get their monetary gains and to you know, make it all about them rather than doing what's best for the group and what's, you know, as opposed to doing what's needed for the group in order to advance uh, what their, their common interests. So they, they look after their self-interests as opposed to the common interests. And, and you know, they're missing out on the fact that their teammates could actually help them in the long run to further their aspirations. Because it doesn't work a lot, a lot of the times. They'll, sure, they might have a higher scoring tally, but teams aren't dumb. They see what the cost was. And if someone is willing to promote self over the group, yeah, their market value actually will probably decrease. And so it's the self-interest versus the interests of the group, the, the interests of, uh, of, of the collective, so to speak. And sports, unfortunately, area where that happens, where it's self-interest versus group interest. We, we, we think about this happening in corporate America, 
Well, I'm going to promote myself. I don't care about the company. I just want to rise higher. You know, it might happen in schools to some extent. But the sad thing is it happens within churches as well. Because we Americans, we are ruggedly independent. I have my rights to live my life the way that I want to, and it's going to be all about me. And no one, there's nothing anyone can do about it because it's all about me. But Christ never pictured his people that way. Christ didn't say he was going to build the individual. He said he was going to build his church, his assembly, his people. In fact, there are a lot of Bible verses that we like to claim for ourselves when in actuality it's talking about the church, the group, the collective. Now we've been studying 1 Peter here and there. And Peter talks about Christians being pilgrims and we're on this journey in this foreign land and we're to li live these holy lives because we've been given this new life in Christ. But Peter says that pilgrims don't do it alone. You're not on the pilgrimage alone. We are part of a group, a collective of other pilgrims that help one another along in this journey of life. And together we advance the kingdom of God and together we walk on this path. So I want to look at this passage today in 1 Peter chapter 2. I want us to take away that, you know what, we need one another to, for this encouragement on the journey that we are on. We need one another to help us to live in light of the truths of Scripture. We need this connection with one another if we are to be fully the Christians that we are called to be. We need one another. We are not individual, on my own, live alone, leave me alone kind of people. God said he, and Jesus said, he would build his church. We do need each other. So I want to read verses 4 through 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2. If you'll stand in reverence to the reading of God's holy word as I read this passage. This is what Peter writes. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they, are, they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, I pray that you would alter our American thinking in some ways and see the importance of the church. How truly that is what is what you, you, you're building, and may we be a part of it willingly. And Lord, be uh, obedient to your call in our lives. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. So if you've noticed in Peter's writings, he just throws a whole lot at you uh, all at once, and he puts it in various ways. And, and this passage that I read might seem a little bit difficult because Peter, he uses all these different metaphors and pictures. I mean, he calls us stones, and then he calls us priests, and then he calls us a race, and then he calls us a nation, and then he calls us a possession, and it's all over the place. But all these pictures and all these metaphors revolve around one common theme. It's talking about a people. It's talking about a group of pilgrims, yes. But the overall picture that he is using is that we are a temple. He is using the imagery from the Jewish temple. Now, the temple for the Jews represented the presence of God among the people where a centralized location of worship could happen. But now Peter is saying, we are the people. We, the group of pilgrims, the church, we are the real temple. Yes, God is with us as individuals. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But the church, and not just our local church, but the church, universal, we are the temple. The temple, the building, was destroyed 2,000 years ago. But that doesn't matter now because we do not need that building because now God is present in a special way in the midst of his people. Wherever we are, God is. Yes, wherever we are as individuals, God is. Wherever we are gathered as a people, God is present. We are the temple. And so I want to look at the different aspects of this temple imagery that Peter is using to describe us as Christian pilgrims. What does it, what does it tell us? So there's, there's different aspects and different peoples that he talks about. So first today, I want to uh, show you that he emphasizes that Christ is our support and our standard. Christ is our support and standard. Because here, in chapter 2, Peter says that Christ is a living stone, that he is chosen and precious in the sight of God, which means God, Jesus was demonstrated to be the Messiah by his resurrection. It, it, it's, it, by the resurrection, it, it's demonstrated that he is the chosen Messiah of God, and he is living, and he is to be believed, and he is to be followed, but he, he says he's a living stone, but he's not just any living stone because Peter quotes several Old Testament passages that show that Jesus is the cornerstone of the entire structure Jesus is the cornerstone of the church Jesus is the cornerstone of this new temple so that's part of this motif of the temple Jesus is the cornerstone now what is the cornerstone well the cornerstone was the first stone that was laid in the ground of a building or structure back in those days because you know they it was all building bricks and stones on top of one another, but the cornerstone was the foundational stone upon which all of the rest of the building depended. Because not only did the cornerstone hold it up and support it and strengthen the building, it also set the standard for how the rest of the building was going to proceed. If the cornerstone of the structure would have been 
unlevel. There was, it, it was off, off its level, or if it was crooked in some way, shape, or form, the rest of the building would be the would be off-level. The whole structure would have been then weakened and crooked, and it wouldn't have stood over time. And so a structure has to start out right in order to be built strong. And Jesus is our start. Jesus is the cornerstone. And that's why the church, in a sense, is perfect. Because it started with the perfect cornerstone. Jesus founded the church. He started it all. The Bible says then that the apostles make up the rest of the foundation, their teachings about Christ. They form the groundwork upon which God's people now stand. We find this, for example, in an interchange between Jesus and his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus asks them, all right, who do people say that I am, you know? Well, you're John the Baptist, you're Isaiah, you're Jeremiah, you're one of the prophets, whatever. Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives the answer. Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And so what does Jesus say to Peter? He says that upon this rock, this rock of truth, this confession of his identity, that would be the beginning of the church and the gates of hell would not be able to prevail against it. That's why the church is strong. Jesus is the cornerstone. And then the apostles were commissioned to go forth and make disciples of all nations. And all the disciples of all times are living stones that are added upon this foundation. Christ started the church. He supports the church. He is the standard by which the church lives and exists in this new temple. He is where this temple lines up. It is all centered on him. And then those who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write about Christ and to record his teachings, they make up the rest of the foundation, and believers are then built for the rest of the structure. Now Paul used this same imagery of the temple describing us as a people. And it should be up on the screen, but in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so yes, the Holy Spirit indwells each believer, each individual believer, but God is also very present when the people are gathered together, when the people are the church. And Jesus began it. Jesus is the foundational support. If Jesus is not the foundation of the gathering of pilgrims, then the gathering is not a church. If it doesn't start with Jesus, it's not a church. It might be a country club. It might be a book club. It might be a social club but it's not a church. Where Christ is not foundational, where Christ is not the standard, it is off. It is completely off. A group that claims to be a church where Christ is not the foundation, the support, the center, the focus, and the standard, it's off. It reminds me of this picture. I don't know if we'll be able to bring up the picture, and I don't know if you'll be able to see what the, the picture is. 
So I don't know if you can tell. So here's this building. They built this building. There's four levels. There's four doors that are supposed to go out. There was a spiral staircase that was to be built to reach each of those doors so that people could go in and out of all those doors. Well, somewhere along the way, this is in my brain at least, I would assume that they would have built the building first, and so those doors were there, and then someone was supposed to come along and start building the staircase. Well, guess what? They started off wrong. They started the spiral staircase wrong, way off to the left, and so the staircase leads nowhere, except to a brick wall. Why? Because it started out wrong, so it ended wrong. It's useless. It's not fulfilling its purpose because it started out wrong and it ended wrong. And so it's just completely wrong. That is true of any group, but especially for those who say they are the church of Christ. It begins with Christ and it is built from there. If it doesn't start with Christ, it's going to run into a brick wall, so to speak, right? This is important because it's only when we are on the solid ground of Christ and his work and his teaching and his life that we truly are the temple of God and are able to fulfill the function of the church. Without Christ being the support, we will not be able to be the encouragement to one another as pilgrims that we're supposed to be. Without Christ being the standard, we will veer off. And so Christ has to be the cornerstone, and he is the cornerstone of the true church. So it begins with him. He is the support, he is the standard. But now we move to the next part of the motif that Peter uses. So secondly today, we look at ourselves. Christians, we are family and co-workers in this. We are together in this. In verse 5, Peter says that, that, that we ourselves, those who have believed in Christ, we are living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house. We are a stone, one brick amongst other bricks in an entire house. This emphasizes that we are part of a greater whole. And it's ultimately pointing to the universal church. We are part of the church that has been built since Christ. And now the local church, we are a microcosm of the greater whole. Each of us is a part of the local microcosm, but each of us is part of the greater whole. So now, let's think of it this way, thinking, thinking again, the temple motif. When they built the temple, they first laid the cornerstone to start this whole thing. Then they laid the foundational stones, and then they built the rest of the structure, level by level, brick by brick, stone by stone. And this is, Peter says, this is a picture of us. Christ is the cornerstone. He is the support and standard. He started the whole thing. And then the apostles, they laid the foundation of faith through their teachings and writings inspired by the Holy Spirit. Peter John, Paul, all of them down there. They make the foundational level. Then since the beginning of the church, every person who's ever believed in Jesus has been placed amongst this larger group 
stone by stone, brick by brick, believer by believer. So you have Christ the cornerstone, you have the foundation of the apostles, you have the bricks on the lower levels, the church of Philippi, the church of Thessalonica, the church of Ephesus, and the like. And throughout history, believers have been added and the structure gets bigger and larger. And now here we are. We are amongst the, the most recent section of the temple. We are stones and bricks that have been added to this structure. But more stones and bricks will be added up until it is complete and Christ returns. The temple is done and he returns. That's where it finishes. Why is this important? Okay, great. What a wonderful picture of the church. Why is this important? It is important because we need to remember and realize that we are interconnected with one another and we help support one another in this structure. We are one big family. We are co-workers in the work of the gospel. We are not merely individuals who kind of every once in a while are part of the church. We don't, and that might be the American just way of thinking. You know, we think, okay, I am a preacher and I do this and I do that and that, but, you know, kind of on lower level, I, I'm part of a church, the church and a church uh, as well. But, you know, we think, okay, well, you know, Sunday mornings, I'm part of the church, but then, you know, the rest of the week I'm not because I'm not gathered with, with the people, but it doesn't work that way. Once you're part of the church, you're always part of the church, and it doesn't matter where you go or what you do, you're always part of the church, right? So it's not like, a, here's the temple, and here's this one individual brick in the temple, and that brick says, well, you know what? Okay, today was worship day, great, I'm with the people. Well, the rest of the week, I'm out of here, and the brick kind of removes itself and then leaves a gaping hole in the, in the temple and go, go does its own thing. A brick doesn't do that. Once a brick is part of the structure, it stays there, it's part of the structure. It doesn't say, hey, I'm going to leave now. Or, you know what, I, I, I'll, maybe Sunday mornings, maybe Wednesday nights, and then the rest of the week, I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. You know, a brick that is not part of the structure is merely just a rock laying on the ground, right? You are always part of the structure. Well, you know, I'm going to leave and then I'm going to come back when I need something and kind of just slip back in my spot. You don't, you don't do that. You are always part of the church and we have to think that way. When I'm at work, I'm still part of the church. I'm a brick in the church, the new temple of God. I'm growing grocery shopping. I'm a brick in the church. I'm part of the people of God. We are living stones who have been placed in the new temple. We are interconnected with the rest of the church for mutual work, for encouragement, for support. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. That means we have to think along those lines. That means within the structure, we get rid of the attitudes and actions that would hurt the structure. You know, I preached about it a few weeks ago, but in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, Peter says, put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, because that has no place in the temple of God. That has no place amongst the people of God. Doing that 
around the people of God. One brick is not to have malice or deceit or hypocrisy or envy or slander against another brick. You get rid of that stuff. If you have a critical spirit, if you have an envious spirit, if you have a slanderous spirit, that's a heart problem. That's not a church problem. That's not a temple problem to keep with the motif. That's a you as an individual brick problem. You got to deal with that. You are part of a whole and start thinking about how your actions and attitudes and words affect the rest of the whole. And so because you are part of the whole, it's ridiculous to think that you can be independent and not affect the rest of the whole. It's ridiculous to think that, you know what, it's all about me taking care of my own brick and forget all the other bricks and stones in the structure. You can't do that. It's even more ridiculous to think that the whole thing called Christianity and the church is all about you. You are one brick in the structure among millions. You are not the cornerstone. You are not a foundational stone. You are not the center of the temple. You are being held up by everyone else and everything else. You're not holding this thing together. You can't have the attitude, well, you know, if I remove my brick, this whole structure is going to fall apart. No. You just leave a big gaping hole. Jesus is the one that holds it together. Not you, not me. Yes, as a whole, you are ministered to by others. But then you are also there to minister to others. You are part of a family. You are part of a greater work. The whole, I'll go to church on Sunday, and then the church has no meaning to me the rest of the week, is not at all what Christ intended. We have a common work, and we work together toward that common work. I, I was having a hard time coming up with a comparison. But I was, what popped into my head was like, like a hive. You know, each bee is part of a whole, is part of the work, and they work together to fulfill whatever it is that bees do. I mean, you don't see any worker bee say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not getting what I think I'm due. I'm out of here, you know, and just, just leave and go do his own, this bee do his own thing. He's going to die. He does that. Really, I mean, if you want to stick with that comparison, the queen is the center. Just like in the church, Christ is the center. You know, you don't see bees leaving the hive when they don't get what they want and they, 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 they don't make it all about them, right? They work together for the purpose of, for which they were created. You know, I thought of another comparison. It might not be a great comparison, but for any Star Trek fans out there, you might think of the Borg Collective. Although, unlike the Borg, we're not evil, and we do have our own personalities, so maybe that's not such a good, good comparison for all you Trekkie fans out there. But the point is, it's not about the individual. It's about the whole. But what do the stones do? Okay, so like this metaphor can only go so far. What do the stones do? Uh, Peter changes the picture then to go to another part of the temple and, uh, or at least use another part of temple imagery. And in verse 5, he calls us a holy priesthood. 
that offers spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9, he says, we are a royal priesthood so that we may proclaim his excellencies. So now we're changing from the structure of the temple to the workers in the temple. Now, the, the, the priests were the ones who offered service and worship to God. The priests were the intermediaries between God and man. But we're told in Scripture now that Jesus is the only intermediary mediator that we need, the go-between. And so we have direct access to God. Jesus is our high priest. We, each one of us is priests. We have direct access to God. We don't need another priest. It's not like one priest having to go to another priest. We are the priests. We have access, we're the royal priesthood, and we serve God. And that's the key, serve God. Not be a brick that just sits there like a stone and like a rock doing nothing. We serve God, but how do we serve God? We serve God by being living sacrifices, giving our life to serve Him. We use our gifts the way that He's gifted us and where He has placed us. We serve God in service to others. We serve God by telling the excellencies of uh, of God to this world. We serve God by telling the gospel to the people of this world. We tell the world that God so loved them that he sent his son. We tell the world how good our God is that he didn't leave us in our sins. That's being the living stones. That's being the royal priesthood. That's being the chosen nation. That's being part of this race. That's being part of the people of his possession. You know, that's where in the King James Version it says a peculiar people, but it doesn't mean peculiar as in weird, although, I mean, some of us maybe, but, you know, it means that we are peculiar. We don't belong to the world. We belong to God in Christ. We are part of the family to do the work together. And there is an aspect of this work, and, and I, there's one, one last picture in this whole metaphor that I want to look at. So third... Well, I want to talk about the fact that the critics of Christ are our mission field and burden. The critics are our mission field and burden. Because Peter quotes several Old Testament verses, and he tells those of us who believe that, you know, we're part of this new temple and will never be put to shame. All the promises of God uh, that he puts in his word through Christ are ours. They belong to us. Verse 10 says, you know, you weren't a people. Now you are a people. You had no mercy, but now you have mercy in Christ. That's us. But there's another group that he talks about. There are those who reject the cornerstone. He says that those who reject the cornerstone stumble and are offended. They stumble and are offended by the truth that Jesus is Christ. He is God. And they stumble over what he accomplished. And they stumble over the fact, they're very offended by the fact that we claim he is the only way. They stumble and are offended about what Jesus demands and calls for. Because they are proud sinners, they're rebels, they're immoral. They don't want to face their biggest problem of sin. You know, they're, they're, they're offended when you tell them that they're a sinner. They want to maintain that illusion that, that yeah, I'm alright, I'm okay, you're okay, everyone's okay. No, we're not. They're offended by anyone telling them that they can't fix that problem themselves, even if they would agree, oh yeah, I got a problem. They stumble and are offended by the claim that they aren't good enough to go to heaven. They stumble over and are offended by the truth that there is only one way to God, 
and that ain't them. That ain't any of us. There's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. They stumble and are offended when we say there aren't a lot of paths to God. Oh yeah, you know, Muslims are one, Islam's one way, Hinduism's another way, and this, you know, Mormonism's another way. And that, no, there is one path. And so they, they want to create their own truths. They want to create their own paths. And that's, that stumbling and that offense is going to cause them to stumble right into judgment. But we who are the living stones, the royal priests, the chosen nation, we are called to go out and serve them and tell them the truth and love. They are the mission field. They, they're our, our burden because they are Christ's burden. Whatever burdens our Lord should burden us and the lost do. They are his burden. They should be our burden. And so we proclaim to them the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light, saying that Christ wants you to come out of darkness into his marvelous light as well. But they don't. They try and find their own spirituality. They try and find their own way. They stumble and are offended and are scandalized by the cornerstone. You know, when, when you read the Gospels, those same verses are used about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all of them. But it's as well. And there may be some people here who are stumbled and offended. Preacher, how dare you stand up there and say Jesus is the only way. As long as you're spiritual, as long as you have some sort of religious inkling of something should be all right. There's a very famous man who thought that. Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, he did this interview with 60 Minutes when he was dying of cancer. And he had said that throughout his life, he believed on and off in God. And he said, you know, during that time of his life, you know, he would give God about a 50-50 shot at really existing. But then he said that as he approached death, he started to believe more in God, primarily because he wanted there to be a God, and this is a direct quote. He said, because if there is no God, there is no afterlife. You die, and that's it, and nothing you did matters. Because at that point, you're dead. That's all that matters. So I want there to be a God, because I want life to go on. But sometimes I think the human body just has an on-off switch, and when it's switched off, it's off. And he doesn't like the idea of things being shut off uh, forever. Yeah, that, that's great that you want there to be a God, but there is a God. And what have you done with him? Here is the problem with Job's thinking. Believing in general in a God is not enough. If you don't believe in the cornerstone, he would not come to Christ because that cornerstone caused him to stumble and it was an offense to him. And now he regrets that stumbling and that offense. And yet he represents the field of our mission. He represents our burden. Everyone who has ever stumbled or been offended by the cornerstone is our burden. We desire for them to become a living stone by believing in the cornerstone so that they too can be built up in this new temple, the church. That is our desire. So as we close, we remember 
we are part of a people who have a Savior that supports us, sets the standard for us. We are a group, a part of a greater work. And so that means we Americans have to get over our stubborn individualism and our self-centeredness and give our spiritual sacrifices proclaiming the excellencies of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have to get out of our own head and mindset that somehow it all revolves around us. That it's about us. It's about me. We have to get out of that. And what you will see that when we work together as the temple, as a group, we are going to be so encouraged on the journey and we will accomplish so much for God. And so Christian, today, come and pray that God would set you, get, your, get you out of this mindset about everything orbits around you. You know, the world doesn't orbit around the sun, the or world orbits around me. No. Come and get the mindset, I am part of a group who is going to serve God and be burdened for those outside of this new temple. But maybe you're not part of this new temple. You haven't believed in the cornerstone. You've done your own thing. There's only one people of God. And it's only through Christ. Maybe you've stumbled. Maybe you've been offended. Today is the day to get over it. Today is the day to get over offense. That's the pro one of the many problems in our world today. Everyone gets so offended by everything so quickly. Oh, I, I'm, I'm offended that you say Jesus is... The only way, well, you're going to have to get over that offense because, well, one, I'm not the one that said it. He did. And if you want eternal life, you're going to have to get over that stumbling and over that offense and believe in Jesus Christ today. Maybe you are, you are part of the new temple, but you're looking for a local church to put your brick in, so to speak, to to serve as a royal priest, to keep that imagery, why not join Harvest Baptist Church and serve him as we go forth and proclaim his greatness. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at KidsQuest underscore HBC. Our student ministries on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening and God bless.